Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Guy, Nick Mason, source full of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? We're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. It's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you Uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think I'm looking at him, right? But then I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, source full of secrets. You did. In fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, Anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Morning. Hello, Guy. <laughs> How uh, are we? So, Toya, yeah. Yes, Toya. Busy, busy girl. Long time busy girl. I know. Started off as a, a, an actor, national theatre, movies, into art music, really. I mean, I, I, I think that's what we... You listen back to some of those early singles. That's total art house music, isn't it? Yeah. The funny thing is, is she couldn't have been more punk when you look at how involved she was with the films and everything like that, but actually managing to be at the National Theatre at the same time. And, course, and, and, and then married to, married to one of the great art guitarists, uh, Robert Say, Frick. You want to say the word. You want to say the word, don't you? The prog. (laughs) (laughs) Who keeps his lark's tongues in aspic. (laughs) If that's true, in the fridge. And and have become the most unlikely YouTube star through lockdown. Unbelievable. I mean, they've really come out, haven't they? These incredibly funny, arty interpretations of pop songs. Yeah, um, yeah for, I mean, I think probably very good for Robert to let his hair down like that. <laughs> I do, I, I, having watched a few of them recently, I do feel slightly underdressed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. See what she might be wearing. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good thing, at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> um, I, I went to the wrong meeting. Really? And who was there? Um, nobody. And I was panicking. Oh, wait, I'm here. Hello. I was panicking. Hello, Gary. Oh, my God, you look fabulous. Oh, sorry, I've been filming already. Oh, my God, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. You've clearly come from the future or space or somewhere to give us some great advice. 
and yeah. save the world. Stay in bed and don't wait for me. <laughs> I, I love the fact that, that so you popped into someone else's Zoom yeah. and... Uh, Looking like I, this. Yeah, I mean, straight out of sort of Doctor Who, yeah. I'll tell you what it is. It's, uh, it's um, uh, Moonbase, UFO. Space 1999. Oh, Space 1999, yes. Well, yeah. yeah. So I'm so sorry I'm late. I've been frantically going to every Zoom meeting I have today, going, are you Gary Kemp? And it's like, oh. <laughs> God, you've aged. That, that no, sounds like... No, no, it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. And on half of them, that was actually the code word to get in. Yeah, are you, <laughs> are you Gary Kemp? <laughs> you are so busy, aren't you? You've kept yourself so busy. That's the thing. I mean, yeah. you know, lockdown was was you you've had a good war, as people used to say. Actually, yeah, definitely had a. It's been a great year, and I don't know about you, Gary, but I've been able to think. You know, when you're traveling the whole time, you cannot actually gather your thoughts at any time. And this year, I've done a fabulous album, which is out in August, and just managed to get my head together. The world has also seen a very different side of your husband. What I love about uh, my... That's that's the husband I married. And um, he's a great fan of my physicality, let's say. And uh, he was very, very resistant uh, to the whole idea about a year ago until we started to get responses from around the world. Hang on, just stop, just stop. So when you, when you said he was resistant to the idea, so I'm, I'm, I'm envisaging him sitting in some sort of arty studio with all his equipment set up, and you're going, come on, we need to get on social media, dress in the weirdest stuff and do cover versions. I'll tell you how it started. Uh, yes, it wasn't quite like that because we're very normal people and we, we don't really have grandiose studios we go to other people's studios um i sent out a 30 second um link of me teaching him to jive and you've got to remember this is one of the world's top 40 guitarists who can play in the most incredible timings top 10 and as i taught him to jive i realized he was completely dyspraxic and couldn't tell his left from his right feet foot so i put that out and within an hour we had about a hundred thousand replies from manila <laughs> and i i showed him this and i said i can't believe this and most of these replies were saying thank you for acknowledging that we're here so we did another one the following week and it was all dance based and the, the audience broadened and we suddenly realized that people needed to be acknowledged. So here we were in our kitchen, just getting on, growing our own vegetables, being very vegetarian with our lives, just wishing to be gigging again. And suddenly we had this info stream of people that were really being lifted by the normality of our lives. So the thing that really turned it is we live on the River Avon near Stratford. And I said to my husband, would you wear a tutu and dance to Swan Lake? And he was, <laughs> he was really reluctant. Wow. Really? Really? Yeah. <laughs> and the next day when we discovered it hit the front page of the Italian ma mainstream newspapers, he was furious. But he was more furious at the response. And the response from the critics was, how dare you behave like this in your mansion um, when people are suffering? So <laughs> we we published um, the uh, 
the land plan of where we live, which proves that we're on a high street with a chemist one side and a bank the other. And we said, could you explain where the mansion is, please? We're normal people. Suddenly and, Italian drones are flying over your house, right? You know, well, they... we haven't had that yet. But I think our normality and the creative ideas has been a winning kind of recipe. And my husband has now completely embraced it. He's a different man. And I, I like to think that I've helped him rediscover who he was when he was about 16, 17. There is a level of artiness about what you do. There's, a, there's an irony, there's a creative thing that is, um, it's witty, but it's clever at the same time. And it sort of suits who you were right from the start, doesn't yeah. it? Doing your theatre and yeah. that punk that you, that you were growing up. I don't think I could be anything different. I don't think there's any kind of female refinement in me whatsoever. I, I, that, this is who and what I am. Uh, we discovered today that our last video has now, um, it, it's got a ban on it. it. It's got a parental care on it. And we've been having huge discussions of where we overtip the mark. Yeah, because you're pretty much naked in it, Toya. Well, actually I am wearing a top. Are you? Because I looked at it last night. That's what it is. I think that's just body paint. <laughs> it's both. <laughs> and we've had this massive discussion today that people have the right to complain. And we respect that. But part of me really loves that I turned 63 in three days' time. Part of me really loves the fact that at 63, I've done that. You're still doing it. You're still turning suburbia upside down. <laughs> Because <laughs> the fact that you were doing all that at the same time, and that the idea that you were doing national theatre and being so punk. So, I mean, I've got, there's something, and this is only from Wikipedia, it's not deep research, but I, I, that you lived in a warehouse where you slept in a secondhand French coffin. I mean, yeah. that is the most punk thing I've ever heard in my life. It was very punk, but you've got to remember Iggy Pop rehearsed in my warehouse. Steve Strange held parties that went on for four days. Toya, I played in your warehouse. Ballet did their third gig in that warehouse. I, I know, and I didn't want to bring it up in case you were, had any kind of feeling of regret about it. Um, but yes, uh, the warehouse was just- What can you regret? What would you regret? Is there anything specific? No, 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 I'll tell you my story in a bit. Go on, go on, Toya. Okay, this warehouse was huge. It was the size, about half the size of a football pitch, and it didn't have a bathroom. It had one toilet. I mean, that was it. And we would have about a thousand people in there at any one time. It, it was not glamorous at all. And yes, I had a fiberglass um, coffin that was used by ambulances because opposite the warehouse was a morgue and a funeral director. And I have admitted since that we built most of the warehouse from climbing over the wall of this particular funeral director and stealing the wood for the coffins. And they were lovely people. They became great friends, but I don't think they knew the extent of how much wood we took from them. And they gave me an unused coffin that became my bed. How did you end up? Where, where is this warehouse? Where was it's it? It's gone now. There was protest. Battersea, wasn't it? Battersea. Um, it was part of the Queenstown Road um, oh, yeah, right. railway warehouses. And there was protests when they took it down for development that this was the mayhem where Iggy Pop um, rehearsed The Passenger. Uh, John Cale rehearsed there. I mean, Hazel O'Connor formulated the music to breaking glass there. So there were protests when um, they took the, the warehouse down. Just, just go back a bit. How did you end up 
having yeah. a warehouse. I, I just um, had left the National Theatre and I was forming my first band and I just met a wonderful man called, I think he was called Keith Hudson. I'm, I'm very bad on surnames. And he traced the warehouse and he got me involved. We were creating it as an art centre and uh, Eve, um, Adamant's kind of secret wife, was living with us as well. And a wonderful NME journalist. Um, and we were a lovely, lovely group of people who very quickly attracted the kind of art scene that didn't want censorship and didn't want uh, council censorship on the amount of people that could go into a building. We were completely underground. And when Iggy Pop rehearsed the Stooges or whatever his band was at that time in our warehouse, no one could find where the noise was coming from because no one knew the existence of the warehouse. They couldn't locate it. So Battersea, for about two months, all you could hear was Iggy Pop rehearsing for his tour, and no one could locate where the sound was coming from. Isn't that around the time that Bowie was working with him? So yeah, Bo Bowie was Bowie there. He, he played keyboard, so did he come down to the studio? Uh, he did, but I was on a movie, so I, I only got to see these people really at the end of the shooting day. I, I think I was either on, um, I was on the Tempest, Quatermass or Quadrophenia, I can't quite remember, but yeah, they were all there. You know, I want to trace who this girl, woman is that becomes that person who, you know, is at the centre of avant-garde art in, in London at that period. But before then, I have to say, my memory of playing at Mayhem, which is the warehouse, was uh, Chris Sullivan, the Welsh guy who was very good friends with us, part of one of the Blitz kids, you know. Yeah. He, um, he, he, I think it was his party. We were going to be playing. The evening was called Crash Course for the Ravers. I remember I've still seen a little art flyer. And when we went there, there was no stage, was there? It was. Uh, uh, oh, you were there in the early days. So we did yeah. build a stage. Oh, was my goodness. So we, we were set up on the floor. And there were so many people there. There were new romantics, there were skinheads, there were Ted's punks. I remember the queue going up the stairs was ridiculous. You couldn't move in there. We then start to play. I remember this skinhead was sitting about, standing about seven inches in front of me, looking at me right in the face. There was condensation dripping off the ceiling onto my amp and guitar. I mean, it was, it was a mad, mad experience. And then the police came. And, and they were turning people, you know, getting people out. It was just yeah, a crazy, crazy night. Uh, you are right, Gary. Um, this was an incredibly dangerous place for you to have been. <laughs> I don't think there are any photographs, which is a shame. I don't remember anyone. I don't think anyone could take a picture. They could get their camera up. It was so... no lights. I mean, literally, people... If, they, if people went there today and they had their phones, they'd be lighting the whole venue from their telephones. It, it was a remarkably underground experience. But, that, that, but what you just said, that makes the whole idea of an underground kind of impossible because everything you do would be documented, recorded and sent out and everyone would see it. And so yeah. there'll be, you know, the exclusivity is gone, isn't it? Absolutely. And we had wonderful people there. And I think on the night you were playing, Gary, I, I remember seeing the kind of embryonic boy George walking in. Yeah, no, George, George would have been there. Absolutely. Yeah. Lissa Kaplan, who did a lot of... Oh, well, he did all our clothes, yes. Just literally in the room above me is my oh, costume wow. store with all of her clothes. She designed some stuff for us, I think, uh, over the years. She was a Blitz kid. I, I think she's a photographer now. Um, and uh, she went to St Martin's and she was doing fashion design. And and I've got rid of all my stuff. I'm, I'm not as clever as you. I didn't keep anything. But my brother did find a Melissa Kaplan 
outfit the other day um and he tried to put it on and it, there were so many pieces and panels and sections because you know there was a bib involved and you know it was it was yeah. absolutely insane he couldn't work out you needed to come with instructions what i love about melissa's designs were they were modest uh, for a woman to wear them because she designed for banana rama as well um that she designed with a kind of exhibitionist modesty because every part of you was covered yet you were covered in these glorious hand paintings that she put onto the cloth and these multi-layers that were almost tribalistic and I absolutely adored it I called her designs for the urban tribesmen because they said so much about world culture yet at the same time you weren't selling your body in any way and how had you found yourself there, Toy. I mean, it's because you were very young. I mean, well, at, at Mayhem. Well, yeah. That, I mean, you've come from from Birmingham, right? Yeah, I I was spotted uh, in Birmingham. I was very well known for being the the weird kid who made her own clothes and dyed her hair. Well, I was a hair model from the age of fourteen, so my hair was starting to be dyed around nineteen seventy four. And it really was a bit of a shock um, for the centre of Birmingham. And some directors heard about me, the B-Cat brothers. One writes music, one writes plays. And they came and they, they found me. Yeah, because Nick did music for, um, for Philip Ridley's film, Reflecting Skin. Yeah. And, and Philip Ridley wrote The Craze. Oh, wow, okay. Oh, I, now I knew what you, I didn't know that. So. Yeah, well, and they cast me after a series of auditions in a two-hander with um, Phil Daniels, who I later made Quadrophenia with. Yeah. So when this half-hour play went out on BBC Two called Glitter, which was what the B-Cats had written, um, Maximilian Schell, the German superstar film star was directing yeah. at the National Theatre. He was directing Kate Nelligan in Christopher Hampton's Tales from the Vienna Woods. And they couldn't find a young actress to play a character called Emma. And I got a phone call the next day. And within two days, I had relocated to London and was um, at the National Theatre. And I never look back because the thing about the National Theatre, it connects you to everyone. Everyone who has a dream is in that theatre. And I found my first songwriting partner, Joel Bogan, that way. Ah. Uh, yeah, and we advertised through NME for musicians and we just started gigging, 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 gigging and writing, writing, writing until we got signed. I toured with Joel. I did a tour with him. Which with band? The, uh, the Lover Speaks, supporting the Eurythmics. Oh my God, yeah. how amazing. There is a, every single podcast we do, Toya, there is a band that he's played with. Wow, <laughs> but that must have been wonderful because the Eurythmics were just so... That was brilliant. It was a great fun tour and it was, yeah, yeah it was a, all the readers and we were just doing like half an hour and Joel was fantastic and great fun. I loved him. Oh, good, good. So, so, so you spoke about it as though, you know, it was because you had good hair that you became successful. But, it, you know, how did you grow up and what made you this person that is so unique and different? You know, you were, you know, outspoken, punkish, arty. What was your background? My background was Birmingham, uh, all-girls school. I was kind of brought up believing that I wasn't great breeding stock. Uh, at my school, if you weren't academic, they just didn't bother to push you. And I can remember the headmistress saying to my parents, don't worry, she'll have wonderful children. Well, that was like 
you know, scene from the Alien film for me. I just thought, no, that's not for me. And I just completely rebelled and started running away from home. Uh, the school was just too scared, to, I think, to um, expel me because it was a fee-paying school. Uh, and eventually this outward rebellion, which was me saying, don't tell me what I'm going to be, I'll make that decision, just started to kind of signal to people that I was someone different. I was just being me. And I think there was a great naivety about everything I did back then and a great deal of trust. And when I ended up at the National Theatre, they protected me very much because they realised that I virtually had no boundaries. And when I started working with Derek Jarman, I was still at the National Theatre and Derek realised I had no boundaries and he built boundaries around me. And I really respect him for that. So when you ask, where do I come from? I think to put it down into one sentence, I come from a background of no hope. And I believe that is what, what my audience see in me, that I broke the barriers of no hope. Which is kind of the whole ethos of punk, isn't it? People yeah. with the whole idea of creating a future, you know, which is a brilliant thing, creating a fantastic future from being told there isn't one. There's always a future. There's yeah. always a solution. And that's my message. Uh, and even today, uh, I, I'm asked by mothers to talk to daughters. I mean, very briefly, you do it through these celebrity <laughs> video av avenues. But they say, please, could you just tell my daughter that there's a future? You know, this is wow. a really important yeah, message. Yeah. Nothing is to find. Everything is fluid and uh, you can solve problems. And I think, you know, life is about problem solving, about finding the path you want to take. Your mother was a dancer, wasn't she? Then My she... mother, yeah, staggeringly beautiful woman. Um, and we just shot a video where I'm holding a picture of her. And the video is for a song on the new album, which is about grief. Believe it or not, it's a dance song. Uh, and she was so breathtakingly beautiful and um, was a, a dancer from the age of 12. She got her first stage reviews at 12 and she was living through World War II. She was very traumatized by it. And she was touring from 12 till she met my father at the age of 18. And she was opening for Max Wall. Wow. And we love Max Wall. We, we love yeah. I, and my father, when he met her, could never get close to her because my mother had a chaperone. Well, I've since found out why my mother <laughs> was chaperoned. Um, Ancestry.com contacted me last Christmas and they asked to meet me face to face. And they had to meet me because now lots of newspaper clippings are available for the mass public to discover anything in their history. And they discovered something that they felt I needed to be in a room with counsellors before I found out. Oh, um, and I didn't get on with my mum. We fought like cat and mouse. Uh, we were chalk and cheese. And they sat me down and they told me what happened to my mother. And I went home and wrote this song. My mother experienced something no human being should ever experience. And it's beyond abuse. It's beyond. Um, and I'm not allowed to talk about it because contractually there's oh, going wow. to be a documentary about it. Uh, and I, all the pieces fell together um, on December the 3rd last year when Ancestry told me what happened to her. And basically she witnessed something and because of her age, she could not be the witness and it saved a murderer's life. 
and uh, it, it destroyed her. It utterly destroyed her. And she never returned from this experience. And in turn, she psychologically really tried to destroy me. And uh, wow. she was a, a remarkable woman. And when my father died, I found her in the house cleaning um, when the ambulance took him to A&E. And I said, mom, this is going to be your last moment to see dad. And I forced her into the car and took her um, to the resuscitation room. You know, and she just, I saw my mother become who she was supposed to be in that moment because she resisted it for the whole of her life. And I had two years with her before she died and she became the most remarkable human being I've ever known in that two years. And you could see her life, the timing of her life, accelerating into that moment and she caught up with herself and became who she should be. And I, I, I feel kind of rested in my being that she, when she passed, she was able to move on. Um, but when I found out this story, I, I mean, I phoned the whole, whole remaining family and I said, you're not gonna believe this. This is utterly unbelievable. And suddenly my brothers, sisters and nephew understood why this woman was the most destructive force in our lives. This must have been extraordinary for you, because if you said you grew up not liking your, you know, having a very difficult relationship with your mum, that made you the woman that you have been for years and years and years. And, oh, this, and does that now make you look back and think, yeah. if I'd known the truth, yeah. I may have gone on a very different path? Yeah, absolutely. My mother needed therapy. She needed love, support, to be heard, to be seen. And she needed help. And none of us saw that. None of us saw that. Wow. Yeah. Let's just go back to, into your theatre world, because I'm because you work with Phil Daniels, who's a good mate of mine, and that's how I grew up. You know, I went to Anna Schur. Phil, Phil oh, wow. the first band I was ever in was with Phil Daniels. That is a clip out on YouTube of me and Phil singing when we're like 15 years old on a programme called You Must Be Joking. Yeah. Did you always play a pub called The Green Man? Oh my word, yes. Now, where was that? Yes. There we go. No, well, this is later. Phil was in a band called Renoir, which okay. I, I wasn't in and played the old Red Lion. Sorry, Guy does his bass. I played bass for that band and I did. I my, did actually I, get asked to join the cross, Phil Daniel's oh, band. <laughs> so don't, don't worry, I think, which I actually wasn't interested in. So, um, they, so yeah, you carry on. No, I mean, Phil was, Phil was really important part of my life, you know, you know, introducing me to certain bands and music and then. You know, the, the you know very early days, people people like Peter Hugo Daly, who was, I mean, the first time I ever jammed in a room was with Phil and Peter, and you know when I was about twelve or whatever it was. How uh, wonderful! And and, and uh, you know I went to Anna Schur and I could have gone off and just become an actor. I remember leaving at sixteen and saying to Anna, "No, I want to go into music. That's going to be my thing." But um, I suppose we have to get into how you ended up in Quadrophenia because that. You know. Oh, that's that, that. I will try and abbreviate it. It's quite. You don't have to abbreviate anything, does she, Guy? Yeah, no, absolutely not, please. Okay. Well, Frank Rodham, the director, who up until the point of Quadrophenia had made award winning documentaries, mm. was brought in by the Who's management to take Bill Kerbish's script, which Kerbish wrote um, from Peter um, Townsend's Quadrophenia, as the story of Bill's life and brought Frank Rodham in to put ah. it onto camera. 
Uh, and it's a nitty gritty story. It's fabulous. And Frank Rodden wanted to direct Quadrophenia like a documentary. And I think he successfully did that. And Frank approached me to get John Rotten, Johnny Rotten, John Lydon of Sex Pistols, through a screen test at Shepperton Studios. So I met up with, with Johnny Rotten and we rehearsed two scenes in the screen tests, I was playing Steph and Johnny Rotten was playing what was to become Jimmy, Phil Daniels. Role. I never knew that. Did you know that guy that Johnny Rotten? I, I, I knew that they I knew he'd been approached. I didn't know how far it had got. Yes. Yeah. And Johnny Rotten was absolutely breathtakingly great. I loved working with him. He was a charming gentleman. Mm. And even when we were rehearsing in his kitchen off the King's Road, I think the whole of the slits were unconscious on the floor in the lounge outside. <laughs> but, but Johnny was just so absorbing and, and a wonderful, wonderful man. And on camera, he was breathtaking. And it, the, the story evolved because I never heard another thing since I wasn't offered a job and I never heard from Frank Rodham again. And the story evolved that insurers and financiers would not be involved with the movie if Johnny Rotten was. And when Frank Rodham told Johnny Rotten this, Johnny's reply was, and I won't swear, but it, he was swearing. Johnny Rotten says, I don't want to play Pete Townsend anyway. It's crap life. And, you know, it was just <laughs> the most brilliant um, kind of response. So at this, by this time, I was making a movie with Catherine Hepburn, um, directed by George Cukor. Wow. And, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this okay. is fantastic. Well, I mean, I, I did this audition uh, where I was sent along to meet Catherine Hepburn and George Cukor, which, as you know, as actors, we do auditions all the time. But when I turned up at their apartment at Eaton Square in London I, I wore my National Theatre wig which was brown but natural brown hair because underneath my hair was bright red and um, I got the job I met this lovely elderly American couple who I knew nothing about and I got the job and the next day I went back without the wig and George Cukor said to me when he saw my red hair do I want to take my hat off and when <laughs> When he discovered it was my hair, he marched me into Catherine Hepburn. He said, can you believe this woman's hair is red? And Catherine stood up and she just kept running her fingers through my hair. And she said, George, if only I could have been like this when I was her age. You have her DNA on you. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, I was based at a film studio in Wembley called Lee Electrics, making this movie with Catherine Hepburn, when Frank Rodham moved the production office into the next room. And I kept turning up. And when Frank locked his door, I'd go round because he was on the ground floor and I'd stand outside the window. And I said, Frank, give me a job. Uh, you know, I just shouted through the window. I said, Frank, I did you a favour. Give me a job. Because I heard off someone that um, he couldn't cast Monkey. He didn't know um, the kind of woman who should play Monkey. And apparently it was Roger Daltrey who said at the time I was the spitting image of his sister. And he loved his sister. His sister passed cancer, thus the Teenage Cancer Trust. And Frank called me in one day when Phil Daniels was in the office 
And Frank said to me, if you can do this scene from Quadrophenia with Phil, the part is yours. Well, of course, I'd work with Phil. I, I knew <laughs> Phil. So we did the scene and I got the job, but I really had to push for it. That is the greatest film about youth culture ever made. I would it's say. absolutely stunning. And you've got to remember... It's utterly timeless. It's fantastic. You know, seeing my friend's kids watch it and everything and it's oh, yeah. absolutely I mean it's the eternal story it, it's just one of those movies that I think is a cultural great uh, and it's never going to go away well do you know what I because I live in Brighton and I whenever anyone comes down I love to because there's Quadrophenia Alley right yeah. of course you know where where Phil shags Leslie and uh, and it's become it's literally like Abbey Road it's mm. just they have they have to repaint it sort of every six months it's just covered with like scooter club badges and Japanese fans come and scroll their name all over it. I know, it's wonderful, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Wonderful. But wasn't there a sort of method style to the approach to the acting? Didn't you have to sort of throw yourself into research? And... Yeah, it, I loved it. We had, I remember it as being a three-month research period, but it might only have been a month. We had dancing lessons at what was Pineapple in Covent Garden. Oh, fabulous place. I still have the leg warmers. Yeah, but what was lovely is putting that iconic group of actors together in a room, including Sting, and teaching us to do the mashed potato and all those dances. We adored each other. We were a very bonded group of people. And we had a lovely time. And then Frank suggested we should go off and spend our weekends with real mods and rockers, who by this time were a good 12, 15 years older. And these, these old mods and rockers loved having us. My God, they pushed the boat out. <laughs> I mean, the things we got up to, we were having parties, we were trying the drugs. Uh, it, it was including Sting. Was Sting? No, Sting wasn't there. Sure, no, Sting. Sting didn't go to the parties because at this time the police were yeah. just becoming enormous. All right. uh, and as we all know, Sting is a very clean living man. Um, but Sting would be at most of the rehearsals and most of the dance rehearsals. I don't think he braved the parties. I know <laughs> at one party, <laughs> uh, excuse me, having a drink, I ended up on the back of a motorbike with a rocker doing about 80 down um, a cul-de-sac. And I was thinking, <laughs> I'm not going to survive this. I'm not going to survive this. But again, the whole group of people, and I think mainly thanks to Frank Rodden, were incredibly bonded. There was no splits, there was nothing. It, it's, we were so dedicated to the project. And I think that's why it's such a good film, you know, because you felt safe amongst each other when you started shooting. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, we were just like, how can I put it? There was a slight hedonism about us. Yeah. But also, can I just say, so my first ever band was this band called Speedball. They were from Southend, even though I'm a Londoner. And they were a mod revival band. And it was this whole mod revival scene, which was a complete cul-de-sac. And I'm annoyed. I should have been down blitz with him. But, um, <laughs> but that literally came from all these kids who'd had jobs as extras on yeah. Quadrophenia. And they got, got, got to learn about mod culture. And everyone went, hang on, this is amazing. And so that's where that whole mod scene sprang up from. Uh, and it's going strong. It's, yeah. I, I, I'm in the film... Uh, it's I still live in Brighton. What are you going to do? Um, the movie Leslie Ash, myself, Gary Shale um, has just made is called To Be Someone. It's nothing to do with Quadrophenia. But all the mods in this movie, which is about mod gang culture, and it's out in July now, um, directed by Ray Burdis. Who produced uh, The Craze. Yes. 
I, I, I thought I didn't want to mention it in case it was a different craze because I know he made a Cray film. No, he made the film we did. Brilliant. And um, so the, mod, the mods that we used when we shot this movie 18 months ago have all grown up in the Quadrophenia culture. And Quadrophenia has made this mod movement very, very possible today. And boy, do they look gorgeous. They've refined it. There's, there's so much color in the designs. The designs are much more inventive. It's kind of almost like sci-fi mod to me when you looked at the chroma key colors of the original 60s. Today's mods are very, very brightly peacocked colored. Uh, and they're a wonderful, wonderful team of people. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals, and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants, and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. So how does, how does this actor who's going, you know, because that could have been your, that could have been it for you. You could have just carried on being. But just credibility wise to manage to keep both those things going. It's in, at such a sort of revolutionary time is an extraordinary feat. It was very unusual at the time because firstly, the acting world at that time, you if you were an actor, you could only do stage or you could only do film and you never did adverts and voiceovers. Yeah. It There was a snobbery. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, quite, quite right too. I mean, because you know, this is this is a thing you know that that for me as well. You know, I'm I'm sort of we we have a similar career paths. You know that that I know that you know if you're an actor and a musician, the people in the acting world think, well, you don't take it really seriously, do you, chum? You know, you're not you're not hundred percent committed. I agree. And then so I think musicians are often badly judged in as as actors because we they feel like we're we're just you know, messing around. Yeah, or, or being a celebrity, hobby. which is, celebrity will never be accepted. Theatre is the jazz of acting, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I like theatre the best. I have to say, I personally, as an actor, 
like doing theatre the most? I don't know. I mean, I know we're jump, we've, we've got to keep on to the story, but, but what's your preference? I'm madly, madly in love with film to the point where I'm, I'm now getting involved with investing in film studios and looking at that, uh, because I believe if we can't keep British film going, where is the uniqueness of British culture? So I'm passionate about movies. I absolutely love it. So I always end up inadvertently when I'm in a movie helping to produce it. Uh, and I, I do that for free because I want this baby to live and have a life. Uh, so uh, uh, going back to your question about being an actor 40 years ago, my agent, when I was playing um, the Birmingham Odeon about 1981 with the Toya Band and with Joel, my agent arrived at my parents' house because I, I visited my parents where I came from in Birmingham that night. And she said, you've got to give this up. You have got to give the music up. You are destroying an acting career by doing this. And it's because I turned down a two-year contract at the um, Royal Shakespeare Company because I wanted to keep singing. And I said to her, I'm 24. If I don't live this dream now, I'll regret it forever. And she just said, well, you're throwing your, your life away. This is straight out of a movie. Yeah. But kid, you can't do this. No, I have Literally, to live my dream. He, he was American, it was that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, uh, but you know, I get what you where you were because as an actor, you're only ever doing other people's dialogue and you're being told how to perform that pretty much by a director. But what you were achieving as a musician, as a singer, was, was your own creativity. And, and Gary, I'm very limited by my own creativity. It, as much as I say I live a creative life and I'm creative and I'll only do something if it allows me a creative force, I'm, I'm limited by my creativity because not many people have uh, an unlimited genius. So, you know, I'm stuck with being Toya in this life, but I'm insisting that I develop, I grow and I hone what I do. I'm in a slight juxtaposition because I actually love it when a direct director hands me a script and says, learn these lines, keep to these lines, mm -hmm. develop the character. I love that. But there's a part of me in the music field that cannot be someone else's puppet. And I've paid the price for that because my taste, my creativity is off the wall. Uh, and, you know, I, I would love to be able to go on the road with, with Nile Rogers. I would love to be able to tour with Bananarama and have lots and lots of fun. But I've built the path that I'm on and it's a quirky path. And I accept that and I live with it, but I've limited myself, ironically, by being determined with my own creativity. Because creativity is not something that is available, available to everyone in an equal quality. So, you know, I depend on people understanding what I am trying to say and understanding what I do and accepting it and wanting to see it. There is limitations in that. Mm -hmm. That's why it's very interesting, Toya, that because what you do have is a rare thing, because naming no names, what is interesting is there's a lot, lot of great musical artists who try to act who are terrible for the simple reason that they... How dare you? <laughs> yeah, maybe no names. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> no, obviously, obviously not. I wouldn't be saying it, would I? But uh, no, because, they, because the idea of taking direction and saying someone else's lines, they can't do it. You know, they have to create their own character. Oh, wow. Um, 
I was I went to a, ver a, a very small stage school in Birmingham and I just was taught a very strict discipline. And uh, this was way um, before anyone knew who I was. I was 14. And, you know, the discipline was learn your lines, turn up on time, do what you're told. So I think this is why I did so well with Catherine Hepburn and George Cukor on the movie, The Corner's Green. George Cukor discovered James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, and directed Judy Garland in A Star Is Born. So the three rules, turn up on time, know your lines, and do what you're told. Yeah. So I, I had that ingrained in me. And I yeah, Anna Scherz was, you know, there's two Ps, you know, punctuality, professionalism. You cannot get that out of your system. And if you're making a movie, anything that loses time costs money. And I think I've always appreciated that. And I've just absolutely adored the kind of traveling circus nature of making a movie. Mm. Because the pivot, the anchor point that you pivot around is that script. Uh, and you just honor it. It's the same family thing as a tour, though, isn't it? As, as being in a band. I find you know, it's feeling quite stressful, partly because as a singer, you're using your voice so much. You're doing the press, you're meeting the fans, yeah, yeah, you're doing yeah. the show. And 40 years ago, there were amps on stage, which you had to raise your voice over. Uh, I, I always found touring very, very stressful. Yeah, can we look at this? Because that you had that whole early 80s period, and you did like two live albums, didn't you? And you were a, a very powerful, big live act with a hell of a band. Can we point yeah, out? My Simon, Simon Phillips, Phil Spaulding? I know. Uh, and Joel, and that's a hell of a, that's a posh band. And, and then Nigel <laughs> Glockhart and yeah. Adrian Lee. Uh, they were a wonderful, wonderful band uh, and very, very creative. Uh, and I, I don't know about you, Gary, whether you experienced this, but one of the toughest things I found about that time was the day had 48 hours in it for the singer. So we'd get up at four in the morning, get to the airport, fly to Belgium, do a show for two hours that evening. And then at about midnight, I had was taken to a restaurant. I had not eaten that day. And I'd do three hours press while the band had a meal. And I, it just- Yeah, how you kept your voice throughout all of that. Cause that's, yeah. the, it's so nerve wracking. I'm, I'm really interested in how that music developed though, because what you were doing, you know, when I walked down into the Blitz in 1978 or whatever it was, Billy's Blitz, you know, and Rusty Egan's playing this German synthesized music, it was quite a shock for me. I'd never heard that stuff before. But you listen back to what you're doing, and there's obviously elements of Susie that's in there, and that's sort of what well, ended up going to be sort of goth rock, you know, Joy Division. But you're using a lot of synthesizers as well. Where, how did this arrive in your life and how did you end up making those records? We were very excited about the development of the synthesizer and that the, we never got into that political argument that the synthesizer was robbing people of work, i.e. orchestras. We love the technology. We love the escapism of the sound. So who are you listening to? Craftwork. Yeah, right. Um, Craftwork, Devo, but also we were in lis uh, listening to Pierubu, industrial rock. Mm -hmm. uh, our influences were very, very broad. Uh, early Human League, Martin Ware, I mean, just absolutely astonishing. Uh, Julian yeah. Cope, astonishing. And then you've got, a, 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 you know, orchestral manoeuvres in the dark broke new territory as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. We loved the synthesizer and I loved how the synthesizer 
embraced the voice. It kind of hugged the voice for me more than guitar did. But yeah, but you were ahead of the game, weren't you, with the, with the synthesizer? You were doing it before anyone was... Oh, yeah, I like to think so, and I like to think, you know, I, I was ahead of even... When Joel and I wrote, and when we put our teams together, we weren't really listening to the people you think we'd be listening to. I, I never for one moment thought that, um, and I mean this respectfully, was inspired by Susie Sue, other than, you know, it was rare to have a woman around mm. because there were very few women around then. Um, when we wrote, we wrote in a bubble and we tried to be completely original and certainly never to plagiarize or steal. Uh, you know, there, there was utter respect for the um, uniqueness of what we did, was a respect for other artists as well. We loved experimentation and we certainly, certainly adored, you know, the new evolving culture of the keyboard. Also, the way you looked and danced, you know, this was something, obviously you knew Melissa, you were hanging out with that lot, but I remember your first appearances on Top of the Pops and you just had this extraordinary angular presentation, didn't you? I know. Did, well, that was very, very, them? yeah. I mean, Melissa Kaplan, um, everything she did was, uh, had a, had little right angles in it. It was angular. Ironically, the first time I was on Top of the Pops, Melissa didn't get the costume to me on time, and I ended up wearing a Willie Brown dress. Oh, modern oh. color. Yeah. At the time, Willie was designing for David Bowie. It was, we, we wore all of that stuff, yeah. It was absolutely beautiful, and I think the dress was part of my success because it took the angles away. Yeah, but and that then, dance you did, that those yeah, kind of, yeah. Uh, you know, it's very, very feminine and and you know, kind of very Egyptian. Probably not politically correct today because yeah. I was culturally influenced by so many cultures outside of the UK. Yeah, but that's not appropriation, is it? If you're just doing your own thing, you know, you weren't overtly Egyptian. <laughs> no, no, but there was an awful lot of hier hieroglyphics on my on my costumes. I mean, I do think twice now about what I do and, and how I do it. And I think I can find my own uniqueness without stealing from another culture. Put it that way. I mean, at the moment, I'm stealing from the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the future called. <laughs> but, but, but also, you know, you were writing a lot. Uh, yourself but uh, was there a problem when one of your hits you didn't write wasn't it, it was an early song that made you that was successful I, for you. I wouldn't say it was a problem um when it was presented to me it was written by keith hale from the band blood donor who were a synthesizer band All right. who were very key in the development of, of the toya sound and the toya band and keith had a song called it's a mystery which was effectively about 12 minutes long with something like a, a four to 11 minute intro I mean it was all intro and the record company said could we turn this into a single they liked it and Keith and I um, went into the studio with Nick Tauber I believe and we turned it into the ABC format of writing so that's first bridge chorus mm. I wrote the second verse lyrics and I really did feel that after having this three-year career of being a very strong bombastic female in the music industry, one that never showed any weakness and never showed a kind of flirtatious femininity, 
that I was actually putting the last nail in the coffin of my singing career. I, I, but I did it, I compromised and I did this song and I still felt incredibly uncomfortable when we were out on tour, 1981 March with the Toya Band saying to huge kind of student audiences in student union halls, this is my next single, it's, it's a mystery, please forgive me. And they why, why, why? I don't understand why that felt because it artistically me, compromised. It was a very revealing, vulnerable, soft, commercial approach to something I'd always resisted. And I, I felt, and the big thing back then, a big thing was the politics of selling out. Mm. Yeah, yeah, of course. We never ever release more than two tracks off an album. If you went to three and four tracks, you were robbing the fans. Um, you know, this whole selling out thing was big back then. And, but what I'm saying about It's a Mystery, it, it caught fire. And as a single, it sold so quickly that Safari Records were having problems um, booking vinyl in the factories to get the stock into the shops. And there was this whole period of seven days where, where we employed about four people in white vans to go round the record shops, take their broken stock, and they delivered it to the factories so that we could maintain the sales to get top of the pops. And they did it. And, you know, that song, It's a Mystery, has made my future possible. And I do recognise that. The only problem that I have with it is that I'm not recognised as having written on it. So I don't really earn from it. Um, and I just, you know, feel that my creativity and my contribution to it needs to be acknowledged. Uh, but I accept that we live in a world where these things happen. And we live in a world where artists claim writing credits, credits, and they haven't written anything. Yeah. So you know, I do appreciate that. Change a word, take a third. I'd never heard that before. No, um, I haven't yeah. either. But oh, yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's an I, I, LA thing. But I suppose then the next question is, you know, did you did you feel always slightly compromised that you've your did, did you did you ever let that that person who just wanted to be the pure artist behind did you let that person go no I didn't I don't think I did I think um I fought it all the way and perhaps if I did let it go I'd have had a different career path and I often blame myself for being you know strident bombastic and opinionated I I, I often think um because I, I didn't go and see other bands at the time. I was living in a bubble and a bit like Guy, you know, should I come down to Blitz? It, it's, <laughs> I kept to who I was, but I think now 40 years on, that is now working in my favor. Yeah. Well, you've never stopped having that. I mean, I don't know if, if this was a, was it a plan or is everything, because it has never started and it's been a wonderful natural progression for you. You now present, you don't act, you, do, you know. You're kind of you're everywhere, and is that does that just happen to you? Is it because you're this sort of con you're you're just naturally moving forward? I, I mainly do um, films, movies now, and I've got a new album called Posh Pop coming out, which I've written with my long-term songwriting songwriting partner Simon Darlow. And this has come from the success of In the Court of the Crimson Queen that charted everywhere two years ago. And um, brilliant title, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, posh Pop. We get it. <laughs> it's me, Simon Darlow. My husband's playing on it as a session musician, not as a writer. And we're calling him Bobby Wilcox on it. I have just finished two days ago 
directing and shooting 10 videos for the entire album. So it's going to be released as a CD vinyl album. It will be available for streaming, but also... The... That sounds hugely expensive. Did you make that work? I, I did it. I did everything. So the video album I I've produced, directed and financed. We shot and recorded everything in lockdown. And it has that kind of home magic about it. But it also has the recognition of, you know, we three artists were in this with you, um, speaking to the world. And for me, this might be my final album. It might be. Why? No. I, and, I, and, and the reason being... The lady that, does protest too much, I feel. No. <laughs> and the reason being is I think it's the best career album to date for me. Uh, oh, yeah, I, I think it, it it's a beautiful finale. But I the only reason I say this is my acting career is really taking off. Um, I, I'm in a movie called Give Them Wings, which is winning awards for the film and giving me huge critical recognition in the industry, even though, like most movies, it's not found its release platform yet. And I cannot ignore this. I cannot ignore that... Um, really, really iconic people in LA are contacting me. I, 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 congratulations. I, I have to say that for, for me personally, when I'm, when I'm doing, if I'm doing a theatre job, that's all consuming. And I think, do you know what? I don't want to go back to music. This is all I ever want to do. I love hanging out in theatres with other actors and rehearsals and the process. And then of course, when I'm back in music, I'm thinking, I don't want to go anywhere else. I love music. What am I doing? You know. I have to say, Gary, if I had your music career and the people you work with, and I know that you were out um, with with Nick of um, Pink Floyd. And, yeah, well, both guy and I play. Nick, and, yeah. and you went to see. Did you see my husband at Pompeii? Was it was uh, somewhere else in Italy? If I had your musical career and work with the people you've been able to work with, um, I, I'd be far more relaxed in my music career. I've always found that I've always pushing, pushing the ceiling up, pushing the walls out. Uh, and, you know, to have reward and acceptance um, is, is a lovely, lovely thing. And looking at your career and the people you've toured the world with, uh, I just think, wow, I, I would certainly enjoy that process a lot. Uh, you know, our, our, a lot of our listeners who, uh, who adore King Crimson, I'm sure, uh, you know, would want to know the story about you guys getting together. I, I want to. I want to hear this. This sort of prog hello magazine. You've been together so many years. I mean, what was? Did you meet through music? We met at the Nordeth Robbins Music Therapy oh, right. Luncheon Inter Intercontinental Hotel just off Park Lane. Uh, 1983 was the first time we met. And we met because Princess Michael of Kent grabbed my hand, grabbed Robert's hand, pulled us together for a photograph. What I didn't know was that photograph the next day appeared in the Daily Express and they edited Robert out of the photograph. And it was just me and Princess Michael of Kent with Robert's hand holding a champagne glass in the photo. That photo was on my kitchen wall for another three years till I met Robert again at the Nordef Robbins and Robert asked me to do a charity album for a children's school in Washington. And I said, yes. And we were there for a week making the album and he proposed to me. He said, I just know, I know you're my wife. I've been dreaming. 
He said, I've been dreaming about this for three weeks. I know you're my wife. Will you marry me? I said, well, can I get to know you? And, uh, you know, we spent nine months of courtship and then we got married. We've been together for 35 years. But he is wow. a legend. Congratulations. Yeah. Did he propose you? He wrote you an 18-hour Frippertronics loop soundscape. To... <laughs> <laughs> well, well, actually, that's what they went down the aisle to. It was, it was a, <laughs> had to walk very slowly. Actually, I think he did do that. (laughs) Yeah. We imagine you live an extraordinarily sort of creative, arty existence in your in your house. I wish in your mansion. Yeah. But but I mean, is he always practicing? Is he always in his? I mean, the problem is if you write music that's in eighteen seven timing, you have to practice every day. Uh, Yeah, he's always practicing, and with. Posh Pop, Simon Darlow and I would go into the studio, we'd create the song, we'd build the song, and then we'd get Robert in and we'd tell him the chord sequences and he would just, boom, would play. Yeah. Within an hour, he'd done his part. Um, so- he four, four, that's why. Yeah, four, four. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, yeah, yeah. He Doesn't it. even register to him. <laughs> he really, really enjoyed doing it. Is our house creative? Um, it could be more creative. We don't- Doesn't sound it. Um, Robert, how can I put this? You can't put Robert in a, pu- a pub for a happy time. You can't do that to him. Right. It, it, you know, people have to come to us, have a nice one-on-one meal, and then go. Uh, he he's a very solitary creature. So uh, I think the astonishing thing about lockdown is he's come out of that shell a bit more. Uh, but I have to. Everyone is now like him. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I do have to manage his life. It's been so great talking to you. Really so. brilliant. This has been absolutely I'm so glad fantastic. I found you. You know, I was, I was thinking, who am I supposed to be with at 10 o'clock today? I mean, <laughs> my world is so mad. I got a call um, at one in the morning the night before saying, You're, you start gigging in seven days. And I'd been up all night organising the band and the gigs and the travel, thinking, oh, my God, I thought I wasn't going to gig this year. Hang on, hang on, we have to... Wait, so you do, you do the management as well? I do everything. But, but, but what, what gigs, where and how? Yeah. OK, I was told um, that all contracts booked so far this year could not be honoured till the 21st of June. So about um, uh, 20 hours ago, in one in the morning... I start getting text, 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 text. Your gigs are on. I said, what? What? And they said, everything you've moved to 2022 is now back on. And I up all night with the band going, how do we get to the Isle of Wight? How do we fly here? And the thing is, the gigs are on and we cannot book any tickets for travel. I can't get to Scotland. Of I can't course, get yes. my band to Scotland. So they on it with social distancing, is that what you mean? Until- I think, yeah, the inside venues were given the go ahead that we could go into venues, into enclosed venues um, with COVID um, representation, yeah. COVID ruling, and we could Protocols. do gigs. So this is me 20 hours ago at one in the morning. <laughs> and, and my band were going, we can't get the Isle of Wight ferry. It's fully booked. How are we going to get to the next gig? I couldn't get flights to Scotland because none exist. It's like this huge um, uh, mess, this chaos. Yeah. 
of, of how are we going to get there? We need to honor contracts. So it's. Um, it seems a bit unfair being asked to honor a contract if it's not, if, if, okay, the gig's there, but everything between you and the gig isn't. Well, I mean, Guy, these venues are desperate to... Yeah, desperate. no, that's fair enough. You know, they, 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 if they're open, they're going to close yeah. forever. So, you know, this is the artist's problem at the moment. Do you know, Toya, this has been so inspiring for me to listen to your passion and enthusiasm, storytelling. I, I Honestly, I'm filled with joy after this. Oh, yeah. thank you, because most people think I'm bloody mad. Well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was absolutely delightful, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm so warmed with her enthusiasm and passion. I can tell, I can tell. Uh, your, your shoulder blades are overlapping at the back. <laughs> <laughs> what a power, what a force of nature. Yeah, right. absolutely. We'll have to try, of course, to get her to persuade Robert to come on the show, right? Well, yes. Well, I'd, or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe quit while you're ahead. We won't know. do it in a pub. Uh, it doesn't that go much. Far. We know. No. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening uh, to another episode of Rock and Tours. We really enjoy doing this. So keep writing whatever you have to write on social media or underneath um, on the podcast platform to say how good we are. Absolutely. And um, yeah, just keep listening. Thanks to Ben. Thank you, Gary. And it's good night from me. And it's good night from everybody. Mm.